Help us now, Lord, to understand, to enjoy what things you would want to speak to our hearts through your Spirit. And help us, Lord, to never take for granted the rich blessing of sitting and letting the Holy Spirit speak forth truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Moses, in the prime of his life, enters into an intense training session with the Lord. In fact, you might say that Moses' training really begins after Egypt. His training in Egypt was important, but his training down in the desert was indispensable. What God was showing him and providing him were lessons that would last a lifetime, though they probably weren't too glamorous for Moses. After all, he was in Egypt. He had everything the world had to offer. And now he's a shepherd, kicking up dust out in the middle of the desert. But he had to learn lessons like humility, brokenness. I call that dugout time. Sitting with the coach in the dugout. You want to get out and play the game. Come on, coach, let me in. Let me play my position. No, I just want you to sit a while and watch. And watch what I do. And watch the choices that I make with the players. Oh, but I'm ready to play. No, I want you just to sit. Oh, but I'm a valuable player. And it takes humility to sit in the dugout and not get out on the field and play. There's an element of brokenness. A lot of times people will come to the fellowship here and they'll want to get involved right away. And oftentimes they come from a real rotten situation spiritually. They've come from a broken church. They've had relational problems. And oftentimes as a backlash or as a rebound, they want to instantly get involved. While I'm all for involvement in the body of Christ. Everybody should exercise their gift. I will often caution the person. Say, make sure that your activity is spirit-led. Don't just get involved for the sake of getting involved. In fact, don't feel guilty about sitting on the bench for a while. Get some dugout time. Maybe God wants to show you in this period of a wilderness His rich truths. So Moses was taken to the desert. As was Elijah. As was John the Baptist. And what about Paul the Apostle? Paul the Apostle learned much more in three years in Arabian desert than he did in all of the time he spent at the feet of the Rabbi Gamaliel. It broke him. He learned who Jesus was. He had fellowship and intimacy with his Lord. And so it was with Moses. And so if the Lord has you in a period like that, don't fight him. Learn the lessons. You know, whenever there was a test in high school, one thing I wanted to make sure, and that is, No matter what grade I got on it, I just wanted to pass it. You know why? I hate taking tests twice. You know, once is bad enough, but twice is the worst. Makeup tests are a drag. And so when the Lord is taking me through a period of teaching, I want to make sure I'm clued in to what lesson He's trying to teach me because I don't want to have to go back and learn it again and again. Best to learn it now and go on with that lesson and grow from it. There's a great scripture in the book of James, and I think it's usually skipped over by many Christians. It says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives freely, liberally to all, without reproach. The context of asking for wisdom is while you're going through a trial, that the trying of your faith, much more precious than gold that perishes, consider it all joy. And in that context, it says, If you lack wisdom, you ask God for it. Wisdom for what? Wisdom to figure out why or what lesson God is trying to teach you. Don't let this lesson go wasted. Learn from the trial. Learn from being pinned up against the wall. Lord, what are you trying to show? The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. Moses needed to be broken. Maybe you need to be broken. Maybe I need to be broken. Well, God has ways of doing that. And God has ways of making sure that we come to the place of brokenness simply because He wants to use us for His glory. Now, as we saw last week, and we continue now in chapters 9 and 10, the Pharaoh was wanting to compromise with Moses. Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. He says it time and time and time again. Pharaoh seems to give a little bit, then he hardens his heart. He says, No. And finally, he comes up with a series of compromises. 
Folks, compromise is one of the most dangerous things in the Christian life. And it's one of the greatest temptations, I think, to the Western church. As much as we pray for countries like India and China and persecuted countries, did you know the church, the church in that country prays for us? Churches in China, I've had church leaders say, we're praying for you people in America. We know that you really have mega temptations. I know they don't say it like that in Chinese, but... You know, I interpret everything through Californian kind of lenses, but... They just said, we know that you're tempted with materialism, with getting distracted. We've heard stories. At least we're persecuted and we separate the chaff from the wheat. But perhaps your temptation to compromise is the greatest. Pharaoh is trying to get Moses to compromise on several issues. We saw a couple of them last time. But God is making the deal more attractive now to Pharaoh. He's sweetening up the deal through ten attention-getters called plagues. <laughs> okay, you don't want to let my people go? Well, believe me, you're going to want to let them go. They're going to become so loathsome to you. You're going to hate to even have them around. You won't be able to stand them. You're going to kick them out of the land, and you're going to give them a lot of stuff to go with it, a lot of goods, a lot of gold and silver. They're going to spoil you guys. And so God gets his attention. The first compromise we saw last week is where the Pharaoh said, Go sacrifice to the Lord your God, but stay in the land. And we saw how that's the exact same tactic that Satan has toward us. Stay in the land. Hey, go ahead, become a Christian. Do the religious thing. Buy a Bible, get baptized. But don't get too radical. Stay in the world. Say that you're a Christian. Say praise the Lord, but don't change things like your lifestyle. There's an old legend that the demons in hell once had a conference. And they were suggesting different ways to thwart the work of God on the earth. And one little demon stood up and said, I got a great idea. We'll convince them that there is no God. The religion of the world will be atheism. The devil stood up and said, it's not a good idea. Most people, he said, are far too smart in looking at the creation to just throw out the existence of God. Another little imp stood up and said, I got a better idea. Let's convince them that Jesus Christ was not a real historical figure. That he was just a myth. Somebody concocted and made him up. The devil stood up again and said, it's ridiculous. History speaks for itself. All you have to do is examine not only the biblical record, but the other records of historians at the time. And we know that Christ doesn't, it, it won't work. Another stood up and said, I got a better idea. Let's convince these people that Jesus was a historical figure and said these things, but they're not true and there is no such thing as life after death. The devil stood up again and said, that won't work. People will conclude it was dumb for there to be a real God, a literal Jesus, for him to create us, but there's nothing beyond this life. That doesn't make sense. That's illogical. A few are going to fall for it, but not many. Finally, a shrewd demon stood up and said, I got a great idea. Let's convince people God exists. Let's convince people that Jesus Christ is real, that there's life after death. And let's convince them to believe, but not behave. Let's convince them that they should confess Him with their mouth, but deny Him with their lives. That it's okay to just buy a Bible and attend a church. We'll tell them to get religious, in other words. The demon said, bingo. That's exactly what we'll tell them. Churches across this country are filled with people who have compromised let down their guard, not really made a true confession and a commitment. And we're going to see some more instances of that tonight. Now, the second compromise that Pharaoh makes to Moses, he says, all right, go ahead, sacrifice to the Lord your God, but don't go very far from the land. First it's stay in the land, then he says, okay, go out of the land, but don't go too far. Again, the world says that to us. Okay, become a Christian, but don't get too radical. Don't go too far. 
I've known people who've gone nuts in the religious thing. So go ahead and follow the Lord, but just don't go too far. Now, we're going to read in this chapter that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And all I can say as I read these chapters is that God can play hardball with you. It is absolutely stupid to think that you can fight against the Lord. And people who have tried just get beat up. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God will ratify the decision, strengthen his decision, and harden his heart. And we see this several times. Moses hardens it. Excuse me. Pharaoh hardens it. God hardens it again. Strengthens his resolve. Until he is so thrashed by God that he says, get out of here. Leave. Okay. Now, it would have been great if he would have just been supple and open to the move of God at the beginning, but he wasn't. And you know, I want to say something else, and we'll see it through the Old Testament. And that is, God can play hardball with an individual or a nation. And when God makes a promise, and God sets up a covenant with a person or a group or a nation, when other nations or peoples come across or against that covenant people, they're in big trouble. And did you know that every nation that sought to come against the nation of Israel as a covenant people with God, God came against them. God said, you Israel are the apple of my eye. Whoever touches you, it's like touching my eye. And he reacts. Egypt flexed her strong muscles against Israel. They were in charge of the entire world at one time. They soon faded from that prominent position. Babylon, queen of the world, faded. Nazi Germany looked like they were going to just sweep through everything. They came against God's elect. And God can play hardball with any nation. Which actually causes me to rejoice as a Christian. Because I think, what a great defense I have. That when people come against me for sharing the truth of the gospel, if they do, if the world comes against me and I get persecuted, God takes it personally. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked that young rabbi on the way to Damascus. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. You're not just out for my people. I take it personally. I get comforted in that. Which makes me resolve to let the Lord be my defense. Now, have you ever had somebody say something against you or act against you maliciously? Persecution because you're a Christian? Because you shine the light of the gospel? And because you do at work, they want to get you out of the job? They want you out of their midst? And so they'll concoct stories about you. They'll make you look bad in front of the boss. Let God be your defense. Well, I'm going to take it into my own hands. Listen, you can do that. If you want to be your own defense, God will let you. But I'll try the Lord and say, Lord, they're coming against me because I'm sharing the gospel. Take care of them. And just let God do it. I think Moses by this time was getting a bit discouraged, but he keeps going. In verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me, for if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, the camels, the oxen, and on the sheep. And there will be a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the Lord, or excuse me, belongs to the children of Israel. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And so the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But the livestock of the children of Israel did not die. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. As we talked about last week, the Egyptians worshipped animals, or gods in the form of animals, or 
figurines with the heads of animals. And one of their principal gods was Apis the bull. He was a black bull. And the most beautiful temple in Memphis, Egypt was erected to Apis the bull. Apis was worshipped because the Egyptians believed that Apis was born from a moonbeam from the moon that struck the earth. And they actually had a bull, it was a live bull that they worshipped. When that bull died, they would take another bull because they believed that every time the old Apis died, a new one was rebirthed. They would take the old Apis and embalm him in the temple in Egypt. And still today, if you go to Cairo, in the museum, there are, they have found over a hundred the sarcophaguses, or the sarcophagi actually, these burial uh, uh, tombs of bulls, mummies of bulls encased, just like you would mummify a human. As they've dug up the ruins around Memphis, they have seen all of these objects of worship as they worshiped Apis, their bull god. Well, now their gods are dead, all of them. Poses a problem for these guys. What I find interesting is when the children of Israel get out in the middle of the desert, and Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments and the blueprint for the tabernacle. He doesn't come down for a long time. The children of Israel get frustrated. And what kind of an image do they make? A golden calf or a bull. Because Apis symbolized strength. These are the gods, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. They were so used to being in an idolatrous situation that they now compromise in the wilderness and go back to some tangible, visible icon of strength rather than trusting in the invisible God. We have a tough time trusting a God who is invisible. Humans are superstitious. We want some image, some icon that reminds us of God or some attribute. God calls that idolatry because no icon, no image can truly represent the attributes of God fully. So it takes away from His glory. Nevertheless, the children of Israel capitulated. Verse 8, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of the Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt. It will cause boils that break out and sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. Um, ashes, or soot, was used by the Egyptians. They throw it up in the air to bless the people. It was one of the rituals of blessing. They would throw it into the wind, and they would pronounce prayers of blessing upon the people. Now that, which is once a blessing, has become a curse. Boils break out, the skin hardens, and there's these pussy, runny sores upon animals and upon humans. Now the furnace, the word furnace that is used in this text, speaks of a specific furnace. And most scholars believe that it was the altar furnace where human sacrifices were laid, where people were killed and sacrificed to the gods, and the ashes of the humans were sprinkled up into the air. And God is condemning not only the god Niet of worship, but also the method of worship, human sacrifice. And so these boils break out. In verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians and all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, as we have seen, Pharaoh always had these guys around him. He never went anywhere without his personal magicians. They were his counselors. As well as his magic workers, they would advise him and counsel him on what to do. In fact, pretty soon, actually last week, when there was that one plague of lice, uh, the counselor said, this is the finger of God. We better not mess with these guys. Now, we know from the New Testament that a couple of these magicians had names. Do you remember their names? Somebody said it. Janice and Jambres. 
Listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the last days, perilous times shall come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now as Jannes and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, and they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifested to all. Now, the kind of deception that we see with these magicians, remember last week they were able to duplicate certain of the signs, they were able to bring blood in the Nile, frogs that would come up on the land. They were able to duplicate the miraculous. And it was a contest of whose God is better than whose. The deception that these magicians provide is a form, a type of deception that will come in the last days, as Paul says. As Jannes and Jambres withstood them, we know that in the last days there will come these imitators. Perilous times shall come. Men will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. In seeking to imitate the signs of Moses, they were trying to neutralize the effect that the miraculous had on the minds of the people. Now, why do I say that? Because every time something miraculous happens, don't necessarily assume it's from God. In the tribulation period, we know that the Antichrist will work miracles. Paul the Apostle said that the devil himself can be transformed into an angel of light and deceive many. So whenever there is something miraculous, you need to check out the source, the teaching behind it, what the result is of the miracle. That's a principle laid out we see in the book of Deuteronomy that we will come to later on. So there's an often repeated pattern with Satan, and we see it here in the book of Exodus. First comes a frontal attack, persecution. And so Pharaoh tries to kill all the males, destroy the Hebrew children as they're born. They start multiplying. They grow bigger. There's more of them. And there's so many in the land, he decides then, if you can't beat them, let's join them. That's Satan's strategy. If you can't beat them, join them. Become like them. Infiltrate their ranks. Duplicate their actions. That's been a pattern actually of the devil for a long time. And we know that the enemy, the devil, can produce fake, what the Bible calls lying signs and wonders. Don't be afraid of signs and wonders. God has given you His Spirit and you are able by the Spirit of God and the Word of God to discern the false from the true. You don't have to be afraid of signs, especially legitimate ones that God wants to give. There can be lying signs and wonders, but there can also be true signs and wonders. The fact that there is a fake does not negate the genuine. It only proves that there is a genuine because now we have an imitation. If you find a fake $20 bill, does that prove that, oh, money's bad? No, it proves that there's a genuine somewhere for somebody to fake it. Every now and then, somebody will say to me, Skip, I'm afraid, I'm really afraid to ask the Holy Spirit to have His complete way in my life. And I say, why? Why would you be afraid of the Holy Spirit having His complete way in your life? Well, I've watched certain people who say they've become open to the Holy Spirit and I look at their lives and they act really goofy. And I'm afraid that I'm going to act really goofy. I'm afraid He's going to make me do something really dumb and embarrassing. And I always comfort them with the Scripture. You don't ever have to be afraid of a legitimate, genuine, bona fide work of the Holy Spirit. You don't ever have to be afraid of all that God has for you. I'm afraid that I don't experience all that God has for me. Lord, if there's something more, go for it. I'm open to it. God will protect you. Jesus said, if a son asks his father for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? And can you imagine that? Dad, I'm hungry. Can I have supper? Um, yeah, sure. Go ahead. It's on the table. Only to find that there's scorpions crawling around on his plate and the father going, Gah. Gotcha. 
That's not the heart of a father. How much more, Jesus said, will the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? And in another place, how much more will the Father give good things to those who ask Him? You never have to be afraid of a legitimate work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Oh, there's lots of imitations. There's lots of counterfeits. And in fact, it's the imitations and the counterfeits that make many Christians shy away, gun-shy completely, and sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater. Oh, it's not for me. I'm going to be closed completely to that. You don't have to be. Be open to what God would have. Now, in this plague, this is the first time God touches man in this judgment, not just the animals. The boils are not only upon the animals, but also upon the human beings. Why is that significant? Because according to Egyptian ritual custom, for the priests in the temples to be able to worship, they had to be free from any defects physically, any kind of a skin disease. And now there's boils all over their body at this time, which would put a moratorium on the worship. I can see signs outside of the temples, temporarily closed due to sickness. It halted everything. There's boils on the bodies of animals and men. Look at verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. That's the illustration we gave at the beginning. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now God hardens it. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not heed them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now God did not intentionally harden his heart to close off the free will of Moses. Moses, uh, uh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart and God is finally saying, have it your way, pal. You want to harden your heart? I'll make, you want to be a hard nut to crack? Go ahead. I'll firm up the decision you make so that when you are busted, you and everyone else will know I am the Lord. There will be no mistaking about it. It will be so dramatic that no mistake will be made. Verse 13 through 35 speaks now of the hail, the next plague given over. The Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before the Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. You know, if I were Moses at this time, I would be coming a little unglued. It's like, okay, play it again. Same old record. I've been here before. I'd be getting a little discouraged. Have you ever... felt that God had called you to something. Only to find that things weren't working out the way you wanted them to, that you expected them to. You think, you know what, this is, but I'm not going to do this. I quit. I quit. I'm going to hang it up. I've watched people go out and start churches and they'll plow it. They'll plow the ground for months. They'll give Bible studies. They'll pour out their hearts. They'll work a community, pray for the community. Nothing happens. It gets so frustrated. And they'll call myself or another pastor on staff or someone else in another church and go, what do I do? I'm ready to quit. Can you hire me? I said, no, stick it out for another few months. Few months? Sure, just go for it. If you feel God has called you, do it. I learned that lesson. I told the Lord I would keep my covenant with Him in Albuquerque for a year. I figured I couldn't last more than a year. I was realistic and I said, I'll live here a year. I really didn't see myself past that point. I wanted God to work, but I really didn't see myself here longer than a, oh, a couple years max. I'm, I'll be out of here. At the six-month line, I told some of the guys that had come alongside me for accountability. I said, you know, I'm just ready to go back. He said, hey, the Lord's blessing the Bible study. I said, no, not, it's not what I anticipated. It's not what I expected. I, I've had fun here. It's been a great try. But I'm going to go fish upstream somewhere else. And I was all ready to make a move and leave Albuquerque. And it was in the middle of winter that I was considering that. <laughs> Where I used to live was green and temperate. In the middle of the winter, flowers bloom in December and January. And uh, yeah, I, I watched, I came here in the summer and watched the temperature go from brown to browner. <laughs> and cold. And I said, 
No, I don't think God is blessing. I think I'm going to get out of here. I was driving in my car, and I'll never forget, God spoke to my heart. It was not an audible voice that came over the speakers of my radio. It was not a hovering spacecraft trying to get my attention. It was just a still, small voice that spoke in my heart where God said, You owe me six months. You said you'd be here a year. You've been here six months. So I went back to my board and said, Okay, I'll stick it out. They said, What convinced you? I said, Well, it's hard to explain, but I just, i got to stay here. And then God just started pouring out His blessing. Now here's Moses before the Pharaoh. Let my people go. No. I'll try it again. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, Let my people go or I'm going to plague you. Fine. So, they, I mean, time after time, here he is again. Let my people go, that they may serve me. For at this time, verse 14, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet you exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go. A literal rendition of the Hebrew, verse 17, is you raise yourself as an obstacle against my people. Can you imagine being the one who stands in the way of the plan of God? Can you imagine being the obstacle to the move of God? Perish the thought that I would be the one that stands in the way of something God wants to do. That's something I pray against a lot. Lord, don't let me be the one that is hindering or restricting. Let me be a vessel to convey your blessing, but not to diminish or hinder it. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause a very heavy hail to rain down such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Egypt has very little rainfall. It is extremely arid, a dry desert kind of a climate. The average rainfall is less than one half of inch per year. They depend on the Nile River overflowing. They don't get much moisture. Now God is sending moisture, but not the kind they want. It's the kind that devastates. It's a hailstorm that would wipe out all of the crops. Isis and Serapis were the gods of fire and water, the ones that supposedly controlled these elements. And God is judging these gods and goddesses, showing that they are powerless against His hand. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down upon every man and beast which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. He who fears the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. See, at this point, God has given them a chance. The question is, after they hear this pronouncement of God, God says, this is what I'm going to do. Now the issue is, will they believe and act, or will they disbelieve and do nothing? And it says here that uh, he who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. No doubt the plagues were getting to him. Maybe not to Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. But some of those guys out there were probably thinking, Pharaoh, wake up and smell the hummus. This is a judgment. And some of them feared the Lord and they were going to make sure that they got their cattle and their people out of the way. I bet it was some of these Egyptians that were the ones that left Egypt as part of the mixed multitude when the Israelites left in the plagues that are coming up. What is beautiful is that before God judged, He gave them a chance. Again, that's a pattern of God. You know, God could have just wiped out Egypt and delivered the children of Israel without making any contact at all with Pharaoh. He could have just said, out of my way, punk, you're dust. Boom, judged them, killed them, and taken the children of Israel out. But God gives people a chance. Before God sent the flood, He sent Noah and Enoch. Before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., Jesus predicted it and told Israel to turn. Now there will come a judgment upon the earth. 
That is certain. Might not come tomorrow or in a week or in ten years, but it's coming. But God always sends out a chance for people to turn. God said in Ezekiel, Turn ye, turn ye, why will you die? I found in some of the Hebrew commentaries that I have by the ancient rabbis that they said concerning this, See how different are the ways of God from the ways of men. When a mortal warrior shall destroy his enemy, he attacks him by surprise. He spaces out not his blows, and when he has him beneath his feet, he makes an end of him. But God warned Pharaoh ten times. Now God warns people. In fact, God provides a shelter. He says, judgment is coming. I am loving, but I am just. But I have provided a shelter, and his name is Jesus. All you must do is believe in Him, cling to Him, trust in Him, give Him your life, and He'll protect you and your future. He's the shelter. You know that in the days of the pioneer, when fires would sweep across the plains of the United States, some of those pioneers knew that even any man running at top speed would not be able to outrun those fires as they would rage across the dry plains. What would they do? They would burn an area in advance. And they would wipe out all the vegetation by burning it. And then they would congregate and stand in the middle of that spot that was already burned. And the flames would roar up to them and go around them because the flames had already touched that spot. It wouldn't touch it again. There's nothing left to burn. God has provided such a place. As the judgment comes, God already put His wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross. He gives people a chance. You stand in Him. And when judgment comes, you escape it as Jesus told us in the New Testament. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground, lightning, no doubt. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt, so there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. This was no doubt an obvious supernatural manifestation. That's what God intended to get their attention. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt. All that was in the field, both man and beast, the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned this time. Excuse me, Pharaoh, you've sinned every time. This is the only time he admits it. I've sinned this time. Sounds like he's breaking a little, but actually he's just going to change his approach. I'll harden his heart again. And he says, the Lord is righteous. Ooh, he's getting really religious now. The Lord is righteous. And my people and I are wicked. Well, that's true. Entreat the Lord, pray to the Lord, that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it's enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Now, he's getting a response from Pharaoh. It looks very favorable. But this is not true repentance. This man is the master of the moment. He soon, as you will read, hardens his heart and tries to manipulate and tries to compromise with Moses once again. His repentance is not real. You know, there's a lot of people like Pharaoh who say the right things, who make the right overtures, but their repentance is not sincere. It's not real. The Bible says they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. You know, just saying I'm a sinner doesn't really help until you say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I know a lot of people say, well, I'm no saint. Of course I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. Okay, what have you done about it? Have you come to the Savior, the only one who can wash away your guilt and your sin? What good does it do to say, I'm a sinner? That doesn't make you a saint. You need to come to Jesus Christ and be forgiven and have the debt cleared. That's the step that Pharaoh didn't take. He didn't come to God. He just said all the right words. In Titus chapter 1, it talks about people who profess to know God, but in works 
they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. We call these people hypocrites. They put on the right mask. They put on the I'm spiritual mask. They say the right words, but there's no change of lifestyle. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord, and the thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they're the later crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, spread out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw the rain, the hail, the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more. He hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. So the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. Oh, come on, Lord. Do I have to? Go to Pharaoh. For I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. Doctor, doctor. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things that I have done in Egypt. And my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. What is that thing? We've discovered it. Did it. Now, whoever owns this should probably respond to it. Somebody's trying to call you. Okay. Lord, are you trying to get a hold of me? Could be a sign from God. Verse 2 is important for parents. The idea of passing spiritual truth down from generation to generation. Parents, do you tell your children what God does in your life? Do you speak in personal, real terms? Have you ever shared your testimony, for instance, with your kids? Son, daughters, this is what I used to be like. This is what God has done. In simple terms that they can maybe grasp and understand. But that lays a spiritual foundation. One thing that I love about the Israelites is they always made sure that by some kind of a setup of stones or an altar or some visual thing, either a phylactery or some visual thing, it would draw attention. Kids would look at it and go, Daddy, what's that big pile of stones for? Oh, God told us to put that there so that when you asked that question, we could tell you that's when God did a miracle in that spot. A what? A miracle. Let me tell you about it. Daddy, why do you wear that funny box on your head when you pray? Well, that's a phylactery, son. God said that we should put the law of God between our eyes as frontlets and on our hand. And that's why we do it. All of these visual reminders to pass spiritual truth down. The mighty acts of God. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. Now, personally for me, this would be the clencher. I hate bugs. I've traveled to countries, I've told you this, where the thing that really bugs me, no pun intended, are the insects. I mean, some of these things, it's wild what God has created. And when it's a plague, whoo, they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. They'll eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, and the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's servants said to him, 
How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Now even his servants, his advisors are saying, Hello? (laughs) Pharaoh? Wake up. Get rid of these guys. It's not worth the fight. Locusts are one of nature's most awesome sights of collective devastation. A locust in one day can eat its weight in food. It can devour incredibly. Now, could you devour your weight in food every day? Well, you wouldn't last very long if you, even if you could. They do it easily, and they move on from place to place. In fact, one square mile of a swarm of locusts has between 100 million to 200 million locusts. Ugh. They were so feared by people in Egypt that they prayed to the locust god that he'd be nice to them. They wanted to make sure that because there were swarms of locusts in Asia and in the Middle East and in parts of Africa. In fact, listen to this account that I found. In 1926 and 1927, small swarms of the African migratory locusts were spotted in an area 50 miles by 120 miles on the plains of the River Niger near Timbuktu. The next year, swarms invaded Senegal and Sierra Leone. By 1930, the whole west of Africa was flailing away at the pests with everything movable. But the locusts didn't seem to notice Swarms reached Khartoum more than 2,000 miles to the east of Timbuktu and then turned south, spreading across Ethiopia, Kenya, and the Belgian Congo. And in 1932, striking into the lush farmland of Angola and Rhodesia. Before the plague finally sputtered out, 14 years after it began, it affected 5 million square miles of Africa, an area nearly double the size of the United States of America. Those little critters can get nasty. Now Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. They were afraid of these locusts. Moses and Aaron, verse 8, were brought again to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Now listen to this. But, uh uh-oh, now again a problem. Go do it. But... There's a catch. But who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We'll go with our young, with our old, with our sons, with our daughters, with our flocks, with our herds. We will go. For we must hold the feast of the Lord. Who's going? Everyone. Mom, dad, junior. And all the pets. Lock, stock, and barrel. God told us to get out. And he said, Listen to this. The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, all you who are men. In other words, leave them. Wives and kids. Why? Because if you go out, you won't keep going. You leave your wives and kids here, you'll come back for them. That's the labor force of Egypt. You don't want to let these guys go. You are men. Serve the Lord. For that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Moses, you want to go serve the Lord fine, but leave your kids out of it. It's dangerous out there. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. (laughs) Have you ever heard this same reasoning from the unsaved? Hey, you want to get fanatical, fine, but don't drag your kids into it. Don't ruin their lives. Keep it private. Religion is a private thing, like politics. Be silent. You can be a Christian, but you don't have to drag other people into it. Fine, you want to be a Christian? Keep it to yourself. Be an Inspector Clouseau Christian. A secret agent Christian. I am Chief Inspector Christian. I will tell no one my business. say, well, I'll carry a Bible, but I'll make sure it's small enough that I can hide it under all my books, under my shoulder. I'll laugh at all their dirty jokes. 
I don't want to drag other people into it. I want to respect the belief system everybody has. Well, I respect the belief system too, but there's eternity people are facing. We need to be a light to them. Yes, we're going to take our wives, our kids, young and old. Everybody's going to go. This is a commandment of God. There's judgment coming, Pharaoh. He says, no, just take the men out. We are tempted, all of us, to take the gospel and put a bushel over it. To take the light and subdue it. Because the reaction of the world is not favorable when we share the truth. We'll say, well, I'll just live the Christian life. I won't tell anybody. But if you only live the Christian life and the testimony is with only your lives, not your lips, you are testifying only to yourself. We need to tell people what the difference is with our lives and our lips. Now, I know a lot of people say, oh, but I don't have the gift of an evangelist. You don't have to be the gift of an evangelist to share the gospel. There are people that are uniquely gifted with that, but all Christians have the responsibility and privilege to share the gospel. That would sort of be saying, well, you know, I'm not going to give to the Lord's work. I don't have the gift of giving. So I won't go. I'll let other people, oh, you have the gift, fine, but I don't have the gift. That's not the issue. All Christians are called to give to God's work. All Christians are called to share the gospel, but not all have the gift or position of an evangelist. But we can all be trained and motivated to do that. So don't hide the light under the uh, gospel under a bushel. When I worked in Southern California, Westminster Hospital, I uh, put up a concert um, flyer. We used to make great concert flyers of Christian concerts that were coming up. BYOB, bring your own Bible. And that always threw the unbelievers. (laughs) And I remember putting up a poster in the uh, department bulletin board and my chief came to me one time says, Skip, got to see you. Come to my office. He closed the door. And, now, Skip, we all know that you're a religious person. And we all want to humor you. I mean, we all want to respect you. And uh, we understand you carry your Bible and you talk about it. That's fine. But I can't let you put this kind of literature up in the department. We just can't let you offend other people. Are you censoring me? Oh, no, no, no. But you don't want to offend people. I said, you're not going to move that poster. Because next to it is a poster of a party where there's going to be drugs and alcohol. You let people put up all sorts of filthy cartoons on that bulletin board. And being a citizen of this country and a good worker at this hospital, the poster's going to stay. And he looked at me and he goes, well, you got a point. And I kept it up. It's not that it offended people. It was a benign color, beautiful four-color poster that said, come to a free concert, and here's the bands. And then the place was given. And it might have had something like, praise the Lord at the bottom in small letters, but it was not offensive. It's just that the light shines, and it exposes the darkness. And uh, if you ever turned on a light on someone in a dark room, they squint. They don't like it. Turn it off. It's offensive. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land and all the hail, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt. The Lord brought an east wind. Uh, excuse me, stretched his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt, rested on the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land, and the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, so there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all of the land of Egypt. Um, Boy, there's a lot more I want to say about that. I'll save it for next week. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Good thinking. 
Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. Oh, this guy would bug me. This guy would really legitimately bug me. I would probably lip off to him or some get my head cut off. But these kind of responses really bug me. Please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that He may take away from me this death only. Now he's admitting certain things, but he's not yet turning. He's not poor in spirit. He doesn't admit his spiritual need. I meet so many people moved by temporary conditions. When things get really bad, where's God? When things get really good, forget God. Look what happened during the Gulf War. They thought, the world's going to end. We better go to church. Hey, great. Come to church. I'm all for that. You come Christmas and Easter, the two times that most heathens come to church only, or during a war, fine. Anything to have you hear the gospel, it doesn't matter to me. But that's not a true conversion. That's not a true experience with the Lord. It's something that has just moved, moves a person by temporary conditions. Pharaoh really didn't think he's all that bad. So he went out from the Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord turned a very strong east wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the sea, the Red Sea, and there remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness and all the, over all the land of Egypt for three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Time forbids us to go on and finish up. I could finish up, but there's so many things I want to bring out that will take the plague of locust darkness and the death of the firstborn in one fell swoop next time. But what a hardened man Pharaoh was. Hardened his heart. And yet Moses is persistent. He's still hanging in there. Let my people go, buddy. Oh, please pray for me, Moses. And then he sins. Let my people go. Oh, Moses, I sin this time. You know, I thank God for the people that love me enough to be persistent to tell the gospel to me. I mean, I was pretty rough. When Gino Geraci came and shared the gospel with me, I threw him up against the wall in his bedroom. I said, I don't ever want to hear you talk that way to me again. Don't play religious with me. I think I scared him a little bit. But guess what? He kept telling me. And God kept convicting my heart. I thank God for the bold friends that shared the truth with me. But what a tough nut to crack Pharaoh was. What does it take to break a stubborn or a rebellious heart? Well, eventually he'll break. You know, though, in striving against God, Moses was only striving, excuse me, Pharaoh was only striving against God's love. He was hurting himself. He wasn't hurting God as much as he was hurting himself. He's trying to fight God. How foolish. You only hurt yourself. Now let's say tonight, some of you want to exit the church, but you decide, I'm not going through the door. I'm going to make it right through that wall. And I'm going to take a running leap, 120 feet across. I'm going to run as fast as I can. I'm just going to run through that wall. Hey, good luck. Not only is there thick drywall twice, but there is metal frame and girders that brace that thing. And I don't think you're going to do it. But I think you'll get pretty hurt. You'll only hurt yourself. How foolish to raise a fist and try to fight against God. You're going to bow to Jesus one day. You can bow now and have everlasting life. Or you can be forced to bow later. Better to do it now. better to submit your heart to Him. The Bible says, Woe to him who strives with his Maker. If you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, I sincerely pray that you will release your heart into His care tonight and not become stubborn. Because the more you hear the gospel, 
And the more you reject it, the harder and tougher your heart becomes. And in the New Testament, the Bible says it's possible to harden your heart to a place where you become past feeling reprobate, where God gives you over to your desires. And then eventually God will pour out His wrath. If you have an inkling of sensitivity in your heart, why fight against a God who loves you? Why not say, here I am. Here's my life. You've got my attention, Lord. Your word is spoken to me, and I give you my heart tonight. Why not enjoy the one who loves you? Why not let him change your life, give you purpose, flood your life with joy? Joy, knowing the Savior. Let's pray. Lord, these great examples of your power make us feel like fans in a stadium watching their team run the ball. And we see you, Father, doing great works, and it makes us say, Go, God! It's awesome to see you work, Lord. And it's awesome to see you work through individual people like Moses and Aaron and us. Use us, Lord, this week as we stand before the many pharaohs in our lives. As we proclaim your word, give us the grace and the boldness to be lovingly, graciously, compassionately, persistent to not hold back. And then, Father, we pray that you would soften any hardened hearts tonight. That you would do a work of regeneration, of making things new. As people who have come, perhaps, even religious people, thinking about their past, thinking about their future and their lives, are thinking now about eternal values. And we pray that tonight would be the night where the reins of their hearts are controlled by you. Would you do that, Lord? Would you bring that sweet spirit of conviction to hearts of people right now who haven't made a firm choice to follow Jesus Christ? And would you bring them into the kingdom?